Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we expand the conversation on the critical civil and human rights issues of our day. I'm your host, Vanessa Gonzalez, coming to you from getting kind of cold, Washington, D.C. And like we start off every show, we've got the Pod Squad! Woo! Pod Squad! <laughs> Where we discuss pop culture, social justice, and everything in between. Y'all, we have got some amazing folks on the pod squad today. First up is Leah Parada, who is Director of Legislative Advocacy at the Immigration Hub. Hey, Leah. Hi. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Vanessa. And next, we have a familiar voice and friend to the pod, Abraham Paulos, Deputy Director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, known as Baji. Hey, Abraham. Thank you so much. Hey, repeat offender here. Yeah. Happy to be here again. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to be talking about temporary protected status, or TPS, asylum, and immigration. But before we jump in, I just want to set the stage with some quick statistics. On the base of the Statue of Liberty, the words of American poet Emma Lazarus are inscribed. And they say, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. So unless you are indigenous, all of us can trace our roots to somewhere else. Some immigrated in pursuit of a better life or economic opportunities, while Africans were forcibly brought here in chains to build this country. But regardless of all that, xenophobic anti-immigrant sentiment rooted in our country's history of white supremacy dominates our immigration and enforcement policies through present day. So again, these systems are no different than every other system built in this country. Upon his inauguration, President Biden promised to reverse or update our racist immigration and foreign policies made by the Trump administration. In total, Biden promised more than a dozen immigration initiatives, including enacting comprehensive immigration changes, stopping family separations at the U.S.-Mexican border, Reversal of Trump's executive order, banning travelers from some Muslim-majority countries. If y'all remember that, that was huge. Reverse the construction of the U.S.-Mexican border wall. Increase refugee admissions and create a pathway to citizenship for the nearly 11 million people here in the United States who have earned it and deserve it and need that relief now. That is a long-standing campaign that I know both of you have really worked hard on. The former administration, whose name we shall not say... Border policies were racist. They were racist and they were inhumane. So, Lee, I'm going to kick it to you. What has the Biden administration done to reverse those policies and where would you like to see more being done? The last administration, yes, was racist and had its number one chief goal that every single day they were going to take a wrecking ball to an already broken immigration system. And it was a systematic process to cause cruelty, harm, and to basically just make it impossible to have a functioning immigration system, much less have a working system that is rooted in justice and fairness in our like concept of Emma Lazarus poem. And so since then, the current administration has been really focused on putting those pieces together, and they've had some total misses, Mm -hmm. and they've had some successes. Interior enforcement has gone down dramatically. 
But at the same time, you know, there's just so much work to be done at the border. And there's a lot of policies that are rooted in fear of what Trump set up and processing. Sorry, I said the T word. I'm so sorry. It's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> Historically, was he was word. the president. <laughs> I think this conversation we're going to have today is pretty much about keeping asylum accessible, what it means for our country, what it means for people who call America home right now, and also like our duty in the region, across the country, in the globe, if we're going to like say that those are our values and we have to live up to our values. Yeah, that's real. Thank you for that. I think what is interesting, too, is that there's so many of us that this issue touches, whether or not people know it, right? I'm second generation Mexican. Leah's from El Salvador. Abraham, where are your people at? Eritrea. Gang, gang. Right? And had it not been for the strength and the willingness to kind of just overcome, we wouldn't even be sitting here right now. So again, we are lucky that we had generations before us say, you know what? No, I'm going to change this. I'm going to make this happen. But with that comes a lot of narratives, right? We can have some really positive narratives, but there's some also very ugly narratives when we talk about immigration in our country. But one of the narratives that I want to jump into, and I'm going to turn to you, Abraham, when we talk about immigration, for many years, people always thought it was brown people from South America, Mexicans crossing the border. And we often see those images in El Paso or along the California border. And people seem to think that's it, right? That that's what immigration looks like. But that's not true. Just a few weeks ago, we were also horrified to see photos and videos of Haitian migrants who were being abused at the U.S.-Mexico border while attending to seek asylum, which is legal. Can you tell us, one, a little bit about Baji and why your perspective is a bit different in this conversation? And then a bit about what is the asylum-seeking process and what did we see that time? I will try to, like, do my best at being concise with it all. So at the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, I mean, what we do is we organize and try to get Black people in America, African-Americans, and then those of us that are non-citizens or immigrants, we try to get together on a political agenda that is about racial justice and migrant rights. That's the most simple way that I can sort of explain that. I think that there is a reason why immigration is always considered a Latinx issue because of the numbers. And then also like this land, right, was stolen from the Latinx. So I'm like, no, it needs to be the number one issue, right? As far as when folks look at immigration, right? And I think that it's important that we keep it sort of in the Latinx kind of vibe in the beginning, because it's a land issue, right? Who came over and took what? For us, we don't knock that at all. I think that when we're talking about Black immigrants, we're really talking about modern recent history. To take a step back, right? And I think you brought up a really great point about the roots of the U.S. being racist. The first Citizenship Act that was passed in this country, 1790, right? It basically excluded indigenous people, right? A lot of folks from Central America and then uh, enslaved black people. And when you look at the prison population, they are disproportionately the number one population in prison. That's not a coinky day. And I think the Black immigrant narrative really only starts to come after 1965 with the Immigration Act, where at the time, 80% of immigrants were white people from Europe. And then by the 80s and 90s, 80% were Black and brown people from Africa, South America, and Asia. And I say all of that to say that the Black immigrant experience is in modern recent history. But the biggest difference is that when it comes down to enforcement, right, the myth of Black criminality, when it comes down to detention and deportation, of those of us that are getting deported, 80, 90% 
because of contact with the criminal system, the immigration narrative gets lost a little bit there. And so if you want to talk about benefits, USCIS and all of that, then obviously that's going to be a Latinx heavy issue. But if we're talking about weapons and cages, the weapons that ICE has, right, and seeing Black people get deported, that starts to become more of a race in America, being Black in America, myth of the Black criminality issue. Thank you for that. I think that's a really important. I appreciate you taking it back to the history. And this is why this narrative started, particularly with the Latinx community. Can we talk a little bit about the asylum process that we saw impacting Haitian immigrants in particular? I think the asylum process is basically for those that are fleeing persecution based on nationality, religion, political opinion. Gender, I think, is now included and being a part of a social group. And that has just always been that way. I think the U.S. with the Refugee Act of 1980 got it to international standards. So now it's the same standards as the U.N. What we're starting to see right now is that, you know, the U.S. is going to racialize everything. And I think that they've racialized the asylum process in which it makes it harder for the U.S. government to believe that Black people are actually fleeing certain situations. Like, if Haitians can't get asylum, I don't know who can. If Haiti and everything that they've gone through don't seem to qualify, knowing their history, wh- what? Like, what? Wouldn't what even else? let them get processed. Wouldn't even let them apply. Right. Wouldn't even let them come through. Which, again, seeking asylum is legal. It's absolutely legal. So we're talking about a lot of systems. We're talking about the history. I love this conversation. Leah, one of the histories that we are living in and that we have continued to live in is not only TPS, but also DACA. And that fight, it feels like we get so close and then we get tossed back again. Like, where are we now when it comes to DACA? So unfortunately, I don't have any good news because... Anything the president does or any president does sometimes works in our favor. Like the courts stop it. They stopped a lot of terrible stuff under the last administration. They were the ones that actually effectively put an end to family separation and zero tolerance at the border. And so now DACA, there's a partisan attorney general in Texas whose life mission is to make sure that no immigration relief is ever, ever achieved through the administration. Both DACA and TPS are in current litigation right now. And TPS is temporary protected status. It's based on the country that you came from and the conditions in that country. But to be real, it's a political decision of what countries get agreed to. Like there's a lot of geopolitical factors that go into that. So like Haiti at times has had it and other times not had it. Of course, Haiti should have all access to TPS now and they should be processing folks at the border for TPS and asylum. But at this point for DACA, It got a temporary reprieve, but that was just until the underlying case made its way back up. We can never say how the Supreme Court's going to rule, but I think your listeners know better than that. They know the deal with the Supreme Court. They know how it's stacked with conservatives, and a lot of them are very partisan. We are in this tricky place where we need Congress to step in because even if the administration does everything that they can, they may run out of tools to keep DACA in place, which is just mind boggling to think about given how well understood they are in the American public. But also that like this should have happened like a long time ago. Like it makes no sense for them to like be eternally in limbo. Right. But that just tells you how backwards our immigration laws are. Even the most popular, most supported population is in complete limbo, which is to say, you know, the politics around the border, which are terrible. Thank you for that. 
We need to hear the realness. So the bad news is the bad news. On the last episode, we talked about the need for people to not only vote, but to pay attention to the courts. I think one of the issues that has raised that the most has been the women's movement, right, and reproductive health and justice movements. And it's very clear, even just yesterday, there was a rally on the Supreme Court as they were hearing the Texas SB8 bill. Oh, Texas. I'm from Texas. I'm sorry, everybody. Texas, get I'm your sorry. act together. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You're better than this. <laughs> we hope. We want them to be. I think it's interesting because I wonder when we look at the narrative of these two movements, right? We see the women's movement and we know that the women's movement was predominantly white-centered and focused for very long. And then we have amazing leaders of color, black women coming up and like saying, no, we got to make the changes. And that seemed to spread the conversation. I wonder for DACA, for immigration reform, you know, as a Latina, I will often get asked like, hey, can you speak on immigration? And it's like, you know, other people can also speak on immigration and I can also speak on things besides immigration. Right. So it's always this fascinating experience for me. But can we talk a little bit about how we can take from other movements and lessons learned to change the narrative when it comes to immigration? You know, Abraham, I think you all are starting to really do that work. Like you said, you're respecting that the Latinx and the indigenous folks like had land stolen and that needs to be a part of the narrative. But now let's add in the other chapters and the other pieces to that. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that narrative shift has worked for you and if you feel like it's bringing more people to the table? We're just bringing the fact that the U.S. is just inherently racist. I think that that's the narrative that I think that we're essentially, as Black immigrants, just bringing to the table. And I think that when it comes down with this narrative between good immigrant and bad immigrant, who's deserving of citizenship, trading citizenship for criminalization, I don't even think we're adding anything, to be honest. I think we're just sort of discovering that even in the immigrant rights sort of narrative, we're really talking about race in America and what does that mean, right? And I think the Dreamers is a great example. Leah said, like, what's the holdup? I know what it is. It's called these racist white men are looking at their situation a whole lot differently. As Black people, we understand this. We could see it coming from a mile away. And the fact that it's sad because DACA is for the youth. It's like, look, these are valid Victorians, right? In the end. And for those of us that have had contact with the criminal system, for those of us that are green card holders, right? For those of us that have grown up in poverty and understand how white supremacy really works and how racist it is. And to actually start to have more of that real American conversation to really say, like, what is citizenship really going to bring us? And a great example to me is Adam Toledo, the seventh grader who was shot in Chicago. And before the story came out, it was gangbanger, gangbanger, gangbanger. And in the immigration legislation, all four of them, whether it's the Citizenship Act, whether it's the Farm Workers Act or the Essential Workers Act or the Dream and Promise Act, all four of them are like, yeah, we don't want gangbangers. We don't want anybody that has any contact with the criminal system. We don't want any of that. And I think to me, that's more of a question of like, okay, it looks like they're trying to expand whiteness again. And so looking at immigration as a question around race in America and what's happening, right? Even you brought up the abortion laws, you know, I can't speak to any of it except for looking at it from a racial lens, because there is another case, Mississippi, where there's a 15 week. The conservatives do this all the time. Well, they'll go and be like, yo, let's just put in some ridiculous shit. six weeks, lock up the Uber driver. So then by the time the Mississippi court case gets through the Supreme Court, it's going to be looked at as moderate. 
this is a game that these racist people play in America all day, every day. And so I think when it comes down to the immigration context, we're not really bringing anything new by being black. We're just saying, don't forget, the real conversation is around race in America. Oh, I love it. Yes, absolutely. See, you can come back whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hit home on your point, right? Black immigrants are more likely to be criminally detained and deported. They make up 20% of immigrants facing deportation, even though they only comprise 7% of the non-citizen population. So again, you can see how overwhelming those statistics are. It's just to your point, right? You can't have these conversations without talking about the intersection of race. Right. In Jamaica, 90% of people that get deported to Jamaica is because of contact with the criminal system. You're looking at most countries in the Caribbean, by and large, it's more than 80%. Overall, Black people that get deported out of the United States is 76 because of contact with the criminal system. Our deportation route starts with the police and just that's what's happening in Black America is the police harassment. So we see that in the immigration realm, right? And I think the one thing we're just adding is saying there's race in America. Let's talk about the police and the prisons before we start getting hopped up on a conversation around permanent residency and temporary protected status or whatever have you, because we're still going to have to live in America. Right. It's still there. I want to take it back to something you said, Leah, about internal policing essentially being somewhat lower. I know that in recent years we saw where police and ICE almost seemed interchangeable in some communities, right? And we saw that folks were afraid to go to the store or afraid to get a ticket for like not fully stopping at a stop sign, right? Which is ridiculous that it was like, is it going to be ICE or is it going to be the police doing the enforcement? Should we be expecting more stuff like that coming down First off, I think we have to recognize that it's really important that the criminal justice reform movement and the immigrant rights reform movement have more overlap. And yeah. I think it's not just Baji's job to do that. It's like everyone's job to do that. In my prior role, I worked very closely with criminal justice advocates. And mm. it's like, don't touch immigration. Like, we're so close to a deal. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, flip side, you know, like they're mirror images of each other. A little intersectionality about like the core movements that do this work every yeah. day will help us get there. And it shouldn't be on the margins. It should be like baked into the cake. So I see that as like one of the big obstacles as like the reproductive rights movement is doing one thing and the criminal justice rights movement is doing another <sighs> thing. And the immigrants rights movement, we're all in these silos and we're being played the same way. And we're like in our separate spaces. So I want to make sure I said that because it's something I have observed time and time again. So the Biden administration just released a memo, I think, last week of sensitive locations where there should be no enforcement actions. And that's really important because we want people to go to the doctor and like show up to court and take their kids to school without fear. That's not the ceiling, but at least we can agree that that's the floor, mm -hmm. that there should be at least sensitive locations where there aren't any sort of interior enforcement practices happening. But then on the flip side of that, there's been really amazing organizing across the country. There's a reason why Republicans have the saying of sanctuary cities, because people have organized, gone to their sheriff's yeah. office, their local officials and say, hey, police in our county, state, district are not going to be ICE enforcement agents. We're just not going to have that happen. So I think part of that is really important, that it's not just the federal government, that we can do culture change, but we also can have state and local policies that make it safer for black immigrants to live in those cities and states. And then, you know, some good policies we've seen from the administration on the interior enforcement side, I think, are like key pieces to get at that. 
it's definitely not fully complete, but I think that those are like important pieces to keep on pushing. I really hope that there is a rollout plan so that the people in the communities who need to know that you can go to these places are safe, know that. But the other danger there, right, and where you see an intersection with policing and criminal justice is getting to those places. Exactly. So it's like, ah, uh, so close. Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but with you all as advocates, like, I have no doubt this is great. We just need people to get out of office and like elect more black, brown women in particular. Sorry, Abraham, <laughs> like start yeah, pushing yeah. that movement, right? Don't hang your head up on me. You know what I mean? I'm washed <laughs> up. I'm washed up. Leah made this point around the sensitive locations, which I do think is like a step in the right direction after we took in like so many steps back with the Trump administration. I think that that's how this works. You have the Republicans or the racist white just go ham and ham. Then you have the Democrats being considered the moderate ones. When really, if you look at it, let's just like be real with it. I should not be pulling up on anybody. This was a system in which 86% of us showed up to our deportation court. The fact that ICE feels like they need to go around and round up people for a made up mythical problem that people aren't going to their court cases for deportations is a lie. And so right now, I think when we see things like the sensitive location that Leah just brought up, and I'll also add the immigration enforcement priorities that they brought out recently, too. And it makes it seem you're like, man, OK, off face value. But really, in the end, I think in general, I feel like we overanalyze a lot, you know, I think in the movement and we overthink things. But I think if we were just to say, hey, like, yo, there's really no change between a Democrat or Republican party in the government when it comes down to immigration. And this has happened since 1996. And that was under Democrats. So I just feel that like for us to have that real conversation as Latinx, as Black people, to really just sort of say, how much longer are we going to wait to at least continue this conversation in the framework of is it getting better or is it not getting better? As opposed to really saying, yo, we should have never been here at all. And let's talk about things in a more restorative, future looking way. I love that. And I think that's stuff that you're seeing, right? Like, what is the restorative and the healing practices that we can also make sure are included in policy? I think you don't get that unless you have people from community leading that piece, right? And that's where that comes into play. You both have made really excellent points, I think, as well, about how you need the culture change with the policy change. I want to like flesh a little bit more because yeah. culture, I think, also ties into accountability. Mm. So like even when incremental steps are taken, it's really important that we like push those to the max. If they're violating their own sensitive locations memo or their own enforcement practices, I think that's like a wedge. But there has to be like a recognition of things that are happening and if they're being met and like still demanding more. I think that that's part of it. And also, like, of course, not every DACA recipient is a valedictorian. For sure. Nor should they have to be. For sure. Supporting your family, holding down a job, you know, getting that one class in, like, community college because you're taking care of everyone else. Mm -hmm. Like, that is commendable. That is part of America. That's, like, really, truly who we are. Like, everyone is, like, struggling at different levels. And the fact that you're, like, showing up is what matters. And I try to shy away as well from, like, the valedictorian good immigrant, bad immigrant. Yeah. I was at the rally at the Supreme Court and we had organized all these events and I was at the rally and I just looked around and I have two little girls and all I want to do is like sit on the floor and cry because these are just like our TikTok kids. 
you know, with the like cute lashes and like they don't need to be at the Supreme Court fighting for their lives. They need to be back home doing their young people stuff. You know, not good, bad immigrant, but like just recognizing the humanity of immigrants, period. Oh, I love it. You're right. They should just be silly. You should just be silly and not have to worry about this stuff and talk about everything else that everyone else should get the chance to. It's so real, right? I want to take us to something that's a little bit more wonky. But <laughs> right now, what's hot in the news is reconciliation. The big push on this, I'm going to say, I feel like Leah's getting triggered. So we have reconciliation. We have parliamentarian. I'm going to throw in that word. And the question about, you know, where do immigrants fit in to this conversation? So can somebody tell me, just like describe to me, what is reconciliation and what is that process? I can go for it because okay. I live, <laughs> eat, sleep, breathe, actually not getting very much sleep because of reconciliation. Wow. So reconciliation is basically a tool that the party in control has if they control Congress, control the White House, but don't have 60 votes to pass legislation in the Senate. But the catch is, you can pass something with 50 votes, but you have to show a budgetary impact. And there's a series of arbitrary rules to show there's a budgetary impact called the Byrd Rule, famously after Senator Byrd from West Virginia, who was oh, no friend to people no. of color. Let's just lay that out at the outset. But these arbitrary rules decide if you're in or you're out. But to get to the final stage of the decision of whether you're in or out is one decided by the parliamentarian. And you have to have passed the House and Senate twice before you can even get to that spot. So oh. we have been through all these gauntlets and we're in the final stage right now. It is difficult and dicey. And I sitting here right now being very real. I don't know if we're going to make it. And I don't know what version of policy we will have at the end of the day. If it's something that we can say, is this a real policy change or not? Politics, building up support. We were not even envisioned to be part of this package, but we like organizing, 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 organizing in every which state who has a cousin in West Virginia, go get in there, <laughs> Yeah, has brought us to this point. But now politics, elections, last night some Republicans won and now everyone is spooked and no, we can't do anything now is kind of like the vibe I'm getting. We're in these final stages and the goal here is get protections for as many immigrants as possible. Is it what we set out to do? Was this our goal? No, our goal was pathway to citizenship for folks because that provides more rights and protections and it's permanent. That is not on the table right now unless we can get Joe Manchin to agree. And Joe Manchin cares about the Senate more than he does about immigrants, from what I can tell. I want to go back to the parliamentarian because a little bit of that process that is infuriating is that the parliamentarian is not an elected person. No, she is a Senate staffer who is an expert in this arbitrary arcane rule called the Bird Rule. So once again, we have another kind of little widget in the process to stop what people have actually voted for and pushed for. And we already have senators who are not showing up the way they should to support. And now we have another kind of piece. Oh, they'll say, I'm with you, but you first have to get the parliamentarian to be with uh. you. And I don't know if it comes with a wink and a nod. <laughs> How convenient. You have to go get the staffer to be with you. Uh-huh. On these arbitrary set of rules. Yeah. This is bananas. So the question that was being pushed on the table was whether or not immigrants would fit in the reconciliation package, right? And the parliamentarian had ruled against that twice. Is that right? Yes. So we have plans A through like E, I think. We're now on C. So we said dreamers, TPS holders, 
farm workers and anyone who was an essential worker during the pandemic will get a pathway to citizenship in this package. And she said, no, you're creating a new path. It's never been done before. And then our argument is, well, immigrants are contributors. There's a budgetary impact. And she's like, oh, well, you can't calculate the impact of citizenship. So we tried a longstanding law that's been on the books for 100 years called registry. And anyone who's in by a certain date has been here by that certain date will get a green card. And so we said, let's just update it to 2011 or 2010. And that would be 7 million people. So if you've been here since 2010, which, of course, a lot of people who were also essential workers would not be included, but longstanding immigrants who have been waiting decades to finally have like a permanent protection. So we sent that to her. She said no. And so now our plan C is work protections, protection from deportation and access to health care for 10 years for 7 million people. And that's going to her very soon. The bargaining that has to go on with people's lives is just pretty disgusting. Wow. Well, I'm thankful you're fighting for that. I really think it's important that people understand it's not just a, hey, let's have one conversation and we lost, right? It's like getting in there fighting, trying to figure this out. You're also trying to mind read a little bit, right? Like what will move them? Economic arguments don't move them, right? Humanitarian arguments we know don't move them. So like what is going to move them at the end of the day? So I appreciate the work that both of you all do and your colleagues and your organizations because it's so hard and frustrating. But thank you for that. We're coming to the end of our time together, but I'm going to ask you questions. Now that we've had this dark conversation, I still think we have to have some kind of hope. Yes. You know, that things can get better. I was at a rally today and the speakers were all youth leaders. They showed up and to your point, Leah, like you want them to just be hanging out and making TikToks and doing these fun, silly things that kids should be able to do. But it was also so inspiring to see them grab the mic and like just shoot off like a rocket. I was like, oh, my God. And I think, what was I doing at 13? And definitely not talking in front of the White House about filibuster reform. So (laughs) (laughs) they're a future. Yeah, thank God. So they definitely give me hope. Before we end, I did have one question that you guys brought up. When you guys talk about cultural shifts, can you guys explain to me like what that means or what does that look like to you? Because in my mind, I think I first go to like changing the narrative in America. But I was wondering what you guys meant by that. That's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there's a couple different places here, right? And I think, again, when I look back and kind of study and engage in the women's rights movement and abortion rights movement, You know, one of the things that was against the Latino community for a long time is that the narrative was Latinos are all Catholic and all Catholics are against abortion. But nobody had actually asked. There was these huge assumptions. And so, so much policy and so much campaigning and outreach was based upon these assumptions. When you finally asked our community, people were like, no, I actually would support and I would understand if somebody close to me needed that help and assistance, right? And so that kind of work allowed organizers in that space, it allowed us to be able to say, hey, all your assumptions are not right. Like you can start saying the word abortion. You can start talking to Latinos about this and kind of start seeing some of that shift. And so I think the question is, you know, how can we continue to push in all of our movement spaces, not only in an intersectional way, right, what is needed, but also the truth. I mean, like, that's what it is, right, is pushing against the normative heterosexual white story that has been told and pushing out the truth. 
And so I also think like in the immigrant rights space, it's not all true. Like you said, that not everybody's a valedictorian, right? And that's okay. I certainly wasn't. Neither was I. <laughs> right? And you shouldn't be expected to, right? Again, I think it's like, how do we do that mind reading? Because we know what the narrative is in their minds. We know them and we don't want to lift them up. And we definitely don't want to repeat them on this show. Right. Yeah. Does that help? That's helpful because I feel like I'm at a crossroads with sort of the narrative or like the cultural shift. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times I think that when I've thought about it, it's always trying to convince white supremacy of my humanity and my dignity. Right. And so I've always felt like there just seems to be this in my mind with the work that I've done. And I don't think I want to do it anymore because I'm like, why am I trying to like convince these white supremacists, persuading them that I have humanity and dignity? When really in reality, I think that we focus on black people and we're like, hey, brethren, this immigration is really going to affect us all. So really trying to like look more inward, I think, because in the end, I just feel like we just continue to get bamboozled. And I think the Biden administration has just done a fantastic job, particularly with black people and black immigrants. I mean, he was deporting Haitians during Black History Month when there was supposed to be a moratorium. And I think at that point, I think as black people were like, "Okay, we get it. We know how they're going to get down. This is tried and true. It's almost for us to be in a state of reality that we have to understand that. I mean, we see it with the reconciliation. You're playing with people's imaginations, hearts, emotions, when in the reality is like, look, let's just kind of temper that, manage expectations. Remember, they're not going to do anything on their own, right? And that we do have to apply pressure, but applying that pressure within ourselves, right? Looking at, I think, in our own community by being, we need a cultural shift ourselves and not always focusing it on how can we convince white people that we're a part of the economy, right? Which is a labor argument that I think, you know, as black people, we find that to be like, hey. We built the economy though too. Don't get too crazy with that, right? Like, let's not hold on. You know, because with the farm workers bill, I mean, I think there was no collective bargaining in that bill. It was harder to unionize, right? And we're like, hey, 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 don't let any of that stuff go because they want labor with no labor rights. And we know that that's a problem, right? And so I was just curious because I hear it a lot, cultural shift. And I'm always wondering, I'm like, for who? You know what I mean? Is it? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, or is it for us to like, you know, the anti-blackness and immigrant rights movement or looking at the criminal justice reform and being like, hey, we need more black women in this. Right. Like what culture are we trying to shift? You know, is it whiteness or is it our stuff? Ooh, we could have a whole like afternoon conversation about this. I think it's a little bit of both, unfortunately, right? I think it's unapologetically being ourselves. And like, I'm not asking you to recognize me as a human. I'm telling you, I am a human. I need you to just either move if you can't live in that truth, or I'm going to move you. And so I think when we talk about also having to work within the systems we have, that's why we talk a lot about voting and we talk a lot about people got to run for office and people got to stand up and do things like that. But I appreciate your point about how some of this has to be internalized, right? But I want black and brown people, people of color, people living with disabilities, all those things to be able to do it within a safe space and to do it without the intrusion of the white dominant narrative, right? And then when we feel good and healthy and strong, then we go out there and we push, push, push. Those are my dreams. And I look forward to (laughs) I think we just, it's both (laughs) and as always. It's both and. So how we always finish these is to ask again, you know, what gives you hope? And so, Abraham, what gives you hope? I think that there's a whole lot to be hopeful. I mean, I just really do think that as like black and brown people in America, I'm like, we got this. These folks are literally on their backs. It's the kicks of a dying horse. And I think the best thing that we could do is stop placating, right, is really understand 
that we need to approach this as like we have been winning. We are still feeding our families. Sure. We've got Popo every corner. We've got La Migra everywhere. Right. But the fact we went through a pandemic and we were the ones that got bodied. And yet we're still like, okay, chin up, keep moving and whatever have you. So I think what keeps me moving is understanding that we already have this. The victory is inevitable because I look at the way that they're moving around right now. The Virginia case yesterday, the race there, I'm like, we got this. And I think that for us, it's just always making sure that our vision of freedom includes everyone. I'm like super hopeful. I'm like, we're kicking their asses and I'm, and I'm really proud of us. I love it. Victory is inevitable. Miss Leah? So what gives you hope? Working day in and day out on immigration in Congress, it's hard to find hope. But honestly, when I'm in community, when I am meeting all the local leaders and the people who show up to Congress every day, they give me so much hope. That keeps me going every single day. And, you know, Congress is no walk in the park, but any win is a win in my book because that makes it so that I can build for the next win. That's my, like, North Star. Ugh, I love it. I appreciate it. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I appreciate you mine so much. Appreciate you too, Vanessa. Thank <laughs> you so much for the invite. Of course, of yeah, course. It was great. It was not scary at all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you again for joining us and thank you for being incredible guests. And we will see you next time on Pod for the Cause. Thank you for listening to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. For more information, please visit civilrights.org. And to connect with us, hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at Pod for the Cause. And also, you can now text us. Text civil rights, that's two words, civil rights, to 40649 to keep up with our latest updates. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Until next time, I'm Vanessa Gonzalez. Thanks for listening to Pod for the Cops.